Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Great to have you with us this week's program. We thank, as always, our producer engineer, Dave Arbrewster. We thank our friends from the Believe Network for hosting our podcast and sticking with us. And we're growing by leaps and bounds every single week, and we thank each and every one of you and tell your friends about the show. You know, I've had a chance my entire life to grow up around professional athletes, going back to when my father started broadcasting the Cincinnati Reds in 1974 and I mean some of the biggest stars um, not only in baseball but but in all of sports you know names like Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and 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 Julius Irving back when he announced in the ABA and Charlie Scott and George Gervin and Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel I mean the list goes on and on and 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 I was fortunate enough and blessed enough to know a lot of these guys starting about eight nine ten years old I'm not sure I've ever met an athlete who is better with people than our guest today, and that is a longtime Major League first baseman, spent a lot of years with the Reds, but also spent time one year in Pittsburgh, his hometown, um, one year in uh, Detroit, a couple of years in Detroit, and then finished his career in Boston, and that's Sean Casey. Um, You see him on the MLB Network. But I think you're going to find out here over about the next 40 minutes uh, exactly what I'm talking about. As genuine, as down-to-earth, as friendly, respectful, uh, appreciative as anyone that I have ever been around and not just an athlete. So, having said that, when we come back, Sean Casey, our guest on Dialed In with Tom Brennan. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. John Casey grew up in Upper St. Clair, Wisconsin, the son of Joan and Jim Casey. He played collegiately at the University of Richmond. You'll hear in a minute the only school to offer him a chance to play baseball. Pretty good move by the Spiders. He won a triple crown in college, wound up a second-round pick by the Cleveland Indians in 1996. His first full year came in 1999 after a trade to Cincinnati, went to the All-Star Game, one of three of those in his career. Played nearly 14 years in 2006. Sean Casey played in the World Series for the Detroit Tigers. He's a member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and is affectionately known all over the galaxy as the mayor. Please welcome one of our all-time favorites, Sean Casey. How are you this morning, brother? How's life treating you? What's up, Tommy? How you doing, man? How's everything? I want to correct one thing. I was I'm not from Wisconsin. It's Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania. I thought I but said Pennsylvania. No, 
No, but you said Wisconsin, but I'll take Wisconsin. They're, they're no, tough people. No, they're good, no, good. no. I'm getting it right. I'm getting it. It's Pennsylvania. I knew that. It's right outside of Pittsburgh. I got friends of mine that are from that big money neighborhood you grew up in out there in Upper St. Clair. Yeah, right. You know, talk about growing up, Case. When, when you were growing up as a kid, I mean, your mom and dad, they were involved in every single thing you did. And uh, what an upbringing, right? I mean, it, it, nothing's perfect in the world, but what an upbringing. Yeah. Oh, man, Tom, it, there's not a day that goes by that I still don't talk to my mom. I talk to my mom every day, you know, and, and my and my dad, too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the most blessed man in the world, the most fortunate person, the, the gratitude that I have for my upbringing in the house I grew up in and, and uh, you know, my family. You know, I grew up with one, my older sister, Beth, and we just grew up in a good good house. My dad was a hardworking guy. He was a chemical salesman. And, uh, you know, it just uh, traveled a lot. And, and like I said, my mom was around a lot and just a lot of just I'm very grateful for the house I grew up in, Tom. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy, kind of, you know, distilled that in me, you know, instilled that in me that, you know, you got to put in the work and if you want to get anywhere in life and just so many great lessons from that house uh, with my family. You know, one of the things, Sean, I think that stands out more than anything. And for those of us and I consider being blessed, honestly, and, and I don't say this. Um, with any reluctance whatsoever, what an honor and a pleasure and a blessing it is to, to get to know you through all these many, many years. And you treat people the way everybody wants to be treated. Where did you see that as a kid? Because, I, I look, everybody has good moods and bad moods, but I, I don't think I've ever seen you in a bad mood. And it doesn't matter whether it's the king of kings or whether it's a guy who's showing up and working 50 hours a week uh, to clean up the stands in the ballpark every night. Everybody feels like you're, they're your friend because you treat them that way. Where'd that come from? You know what? My dad was always big on, you know, people like to be recognized. And, uh, you know, the sweetest sound anyone can hear is their name. And I just always felt like, you know, that, um, you know, I think my, my dad and, and my mom just instilling me like, hey, treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, everyone's the same. I, you know, I think a big thing is there's seven billion people in the world. No one's got, you know, everyone's got unique handprints, footprints. You know, nobody's got the same smile. So I was just kind of brought up that everyone's unique, everyone's special, and and all work is, you know, it, it, there's dignity in all work. My dad was big on that. Like, hey, listen, everyone that goes out and does their business, they show up to to do their work, to go home, support their family, or whatever. So. I don't know. I was just always raised that, like, treat people the way you want to be treated. It's not hard. Be kind, you know. And uh, I don't know. I'm grateful for that, too, because, you know, moving up the ladder and becoming a big league ball player, you know, there is there is temptation at times to think that you're better than any, better than other people because you're on TV or you can hit a baseball. Like, that is such BS. And, it, you know, it just it, it's, it's just not true. And uh, I was grateful that coming into that into that life, I just had the I had the boundaries and the, and the and the and the values to to know the difference. When you're playing in high school, obviously, uh, like everybody who makes it to the big leagues, you're a big high school star. Yet, and I've often felt like kids from the Midwest and you being from Pennsylvania frequently get overlooked in favor of guys like California or Texas or Florida, where they're playing a lot more games and so forth. I'm not going to say you and your dad and your mom were begging schools to get you into school, but you didn't have people beating down the door to get Sean Casey to come to play college baseball for him, right? Well, we were basically begging. We were basically begging. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's Tommy, you know, man, it's like one of those things. And like, you know, for me, my story kind of goes back to my freshman year in, in high school. You know, another lesson from my dad. Like I, I didn't really, I was the best player until about 14, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 for whatever it was. Guys started hitting pubie before I did. I was a young 14. You know, I graduated high school when I was 17. So guys started passing me that freshman year. And my in my freshman year, I didn't I didn't play much for the high school team. And I remember going home one day to my dad and saying, Hey dad, you know, do me a favor. If you go talk to the coach real quick, he doesn't know how good I've been these past few years, you know, hitting bombs at 12-year-old Little League. I don't know what the heck he's doing, but if you was wondering if you can go talk to him really quick and just let him know that I'm better than the kid that's playing ahead of me. And my dad, it was just so great looking back, especially being a father of four kids, you know, looking back certain conversations that you have along the way. And, you know, Tom, being a dad that, you know, uh, could, could steer you in this direction or that direction. And my dad just said something to me that was great. He's like, listen, he goes, I'm not going to go talk to that coach. He's like, because you're obviously not glaringly better than the other kid, because if you were, you would play. And I was like, and so he's like, I'm not going to go talk to that coach, but there is a batting cage that just opened up in the town next to us. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, you need to start taking some accountability for who you are as a player. You need to start creating new habits for being the, the player that you want to become. So instead of me going to talk to the coach, why don't you go start talking to that batting cage there and start taking some swings every day and start getting better so that next year when you show up, you'll be glaringly better than that kid and you'll start for JV. And that was the lesson for me. Without that conversation, Tom, I don't even know if we're having this conversation because that started me on the journey of, oh, wow, you know, when you start to hit every day and you start to and you start to put the work in those marginal gains of uh, be, make you become a, such a better player, your craft, you start to you know develop the skill and all of a sudden you start to become a better player. So that was the beginning of my journey. And as I got better, it was kind of funny. I started JV my sophomore year, then I started varsity my junior, senior year, was one of the best players in the area again. But you know me, Tom, I mean, gosh, I, I, I wasn't the, the flashiest guy out there. I wasn't the sexiest runner. You know, I think when people come out to see me play, they'd be like, oh, that guy can't run, he can't do this, can't do that. But I could hit and I've developed that, you know, I developed that, you know, skill and, and I worked on other things, but that hit skill I always had. And in my senior year, I had no college scholarship offers, not division one, two or three. It was so frustrating because mm. I was like, my dad always said, hey, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. One day you're going to get an opportunity. It would be a shame if you're not prepared. So I kind of always took it in my mind when I was hitting. And my senior year, I had no offers. And I remember my dad coming to me and he's like, listen. Instead of sitting here telling me you have no offers, what are you going to do about it? He's like, because you have to learn one lesson in life, Sean. No one's coming for help you. No one's here to really help you out. You've got to help yourself. And you've got to go tell, you got to sometimes go out and market yourself. So what I did was he's like, why don't you write 30 letters to 30 different schools you want to go to? So I did. I sat down and wrote Clemson, Penn State, Marietta, College of Wooster, John Carroll. I mean, I went to like, I was Division Three, Division One. I. I was taking every, I, all takers were in my my letters, Tommy. I I was 30 letters, whoever wants to take Sean Casey, let's go. And the last, the last um, when I was sending out these letters, my dad came upstairs with a brochure because back then there was no social media. It was like, hey, the, the Rich, Richmond Spiders gave you a brochure last year at the Keystone State Games. Why don't you send them a letter too? So the last letter I wrote was University of Richmond. I sent it out. And bro, all those swings, you know, added up to my senior year having a great year. And this one game, I went four for four with eight RBIs and four doubles. 
my coach, Jerry Malarkey, came up to me and said, hey, Case, you're having a great game. How many hits you have? Four hits. How many doubles? Four doubles, eight ribbies. He's like, that's great, man. He goes, you see the guy behind the backstop right there? That's Coach Mark McQueen. He's the, he's the, he's the, uh, the, um, the, the assistant coach at University of Richmond, drove six hours to come see you play. And it was incredible. After the after the game, Coach McQueen said, I'm going to call you tomorrow, go home and talk to Coach Atkins, the, the head coach. And they offered me a $1,000 scholarship to go to University of Richmond. That's how I got there. And it's just incredible. It two incredible lessons. You've got to put the work in, and no one's coming to help you. You've got to help yourself. So you go to Richmond, and, and you win the, the college equivalent of the Triple Crown. I, I mean, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're known as one of the best players in the country. You're a second-round pick by the Cleveland Indians, right down the road from where you grew up in, uh, in Pittsburgh. You get traded to Cincinnati and in 1999. And you're in a big league uniform. You're at a big league ballpark. It's, what, a day before the season opener? And what happened? It's, uh, it's, it's, it, no, it's three days in. Three days. It's, it's the third game of the year. Yeah, third game of the year. Jack McKeon had come up to me. I'd just been traded for Dave Berba three days earlier. So, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, Jack McKeon was like, hey, listen, tomorrow I'm going to start playing you every day. Uh, you know, you're going to get a start. And you're going to start getting in the lineup. Because the first three games, he kind of was letting me get my feet wet, you know, being in Cincinnati and being in the big leagues, meeting the guys and stuff. And we were in batting practice, and Pokey Reese was hitting in the, in the cages, and you know, Barry Larkin's at short, Damian Jackson's at, at second base, and and uh, and and Damian Jackson's like, hey, Case, you want to take some lives, uh, some balls live off the bat? I'm like, sure, I'll do that. You know, what does that entail? He's like, well, as soon as the ball's hit, we're going to turn it and we're going to we're gonna play it live. So Pokey hits a ground ball to, to Lark. Lark turns it to Damian Jackson. Damian Jackson turns to me. I catch it, and I throw it back to the bucket where, the, you know, the, there's usually a pitcher yep. working the bucket that takes the balls for, you know, batting practice. So I throw the ball back to the bucket. And as I did that, Pokey had already hit another ball. He hits it to Lark. Lark throws it to Damien. Damien throws it to me. I'm not looking. I'm looking straight. And the ironic thing is I have this huge net in front of me. And then, you know, I don't even I didn't really even hear anything. I just remember this ball hitting me as hard as it could right in the orbital bone. And I just went down. Yeah, I knew it was I knew it was I was in trouble. You know, my, my eyes swelled up so fast. Turns out I had a, a big time orbit, orbital fracture. I was taken to the hospital. And, uh, you know, looking back, I think my career was really in jeopardy. I'm just so grateful, you know, that I had, the, uh, you know, the, the surgery I did. And Dr. Kremchek was so great during that. And, you know, it just uh, I was able to come back from it. But that, that you know, was a scary thing being there in Cincinnati and, and uh, you know, getting hit in the eye third day as, in, as a Red. You know, you think about that for a second, and 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 you just said, you know, you, you're you're worried about your career. I'm sure as you're you're, you're down there on the ground, and they're telling you, you got to go into surgery. Yet you come back. I mean, yeah. in virtually almost no time at all. I, I think a lot of times, a lot of us are like, oh man, how in the world is that guy not playing? It's you know this or this or this or this. I mean, you've got a fractured orbital bone around your eye. Your right eye, which for a left-handed batter is the eye you're looking right out at the pitcher, right? And all of a sudden, yep. you were back in what? How long? Six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. I think. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. It was incredible. I don't know if I was ready to come back, Tom, but I was ready to get back to the big leagues. You know, I had to, I had a four-hour surgery because I had double vision in my eye. And, and uh, Dr. Bill Harrison, who was out in uh, California, sent me these drops because I, I had a, I damaged my iris. So my, 
the sun was so bright, you know, um, when I had that, when I had that injury. So these drops helped me out, everything. But I came back six weeks later. I went down into rehab. I went six for 12. Jim Bowden calls me. He's like, you ready? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm ready. Jimmy, I've been ready. I've been ready my whole life. <laughs> so I go up there. I go up there, Tommy. We go to Montreal. We're facing Javi Vasquez. Bam, I drop a three for four, a couple doubles. I think I might have even gone deep. Three for four. I'm like, oh, I'm back. And then this is when the game humbles you and life will humble you, but the game of baseball will humble you at times. I proceed to go over my next 35. And I just remember thinking, man, I, 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 it was just such a struggle. They sent me down to AAA and I was, I'd never been so grateful to get sent down. Cause I was like, okay, I, I gotta get my swing together. I gotta get my rhythm back, my timing. And uh, one thing I learned about the game of baseball, man, it, it is, it is a tough game. And if you're not 100% ready to go, and you're, and you're not exactly where you need to be. It'll eat you up fast. You know, that 99 team, uh, despite the fact that you guys did not advance onto the playoffs and all that kind of thing, became truly one of the all-time fan favorite teams uh, in, in the history of the Cincinnati Reds franchise. You guys make the deep run, um, and, and, and you play great, and there's a, there's a really nice nucleus coming up. All of a sudden, the offseason, you trade for Ken Griffey, junior and the whole world is saying look out for the Cincinnati Reds at the time he's the best player in the game um but it never panned out and it's not it's not to sit here and say it's to blame anybody because certainly that's not the case I mean injuries are going to happen but isn't it amazing when you think back and and wherever you were when you heard the team acquired Ken Griffey Jr. and the things you thought were going to happen and they just never happened Life's funny that way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, you know, life life can take uh, can pivot on you really quick. You know, I think the biggest thing was, you know, we got Ken Griffey Jr. at the time. Junior was Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael of, of baseball. He was the best player in the game. I think he had just hit four fifty six home runs, had one hundred forty RBIs. You know, ridiculous numbers. He was the great one of the greatest players to ever play the game. So when we got when we got Junior, we were thinking, man, we got a great team here. We just won ninety six games in ninety nine. You know, we're getting we're getting the best player on the planet. And, uh, yeah, it just never really gelled. I, I think I, – I, and I, I don't think it was so much junior as it was our, our pitching. I just don't think – you know, we didn't we didn't do a good job in the front office of putting the money into into, into the team the way we should have, I think, as far as the pitching goes. Because you, you see, you can have Mike Trout, even Shohei Otani. If you don't have the pitching behind them, you ain't winning baseball games. So you can have Ken Griffey Jr., and the best players in the world. But if you don't have a nucleus of guys on the bump that can pitch, you're not going to win in this league. And I think that was a big part of it. You know, uh, I, I remember Joe Morgan, the late Joe Morgan, saying to me one time when we were having a conversation that one of the easiest – easy is not the right word. It, it's easier to be a great player on a bad team than it is to be a great player on a really good team. You agree with that? So Joe, Joe was saying it's it's Joe is saying that, that when the expectations are high and you've got this team that everybody thinks is going to be really, really good and all the pressure that comes along with that, that it's harder to be a great player. I may have misspoke this. It's harder to be a great player on a good team than it is to be a great player on a bad team. You agree with that? Mm, I, I, 
Well, I, I can see what he's saying there. Yeah, because I think that when you're on a great team, I think expectations are a lot higher, right? And I think you even go back to those big red machine teams, and, you, you know, it's tough to pick out who the best player was when you got Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Joe Morgan. I mean, obviously Joe was, you know, NL MVP and, you know, one of the best players out there. But I think the expectations as a great player when you're on a great team, I think they do go up. I think it is harder at times because I think when you're on not a great team, uh, and you're a great player, I don't know, like sometimes people aren't paying as much attention. But when you're on mm -hmm. a great team and you're a great player, even though there's a bunch of great players, the expectations for you to, to be the one of the best are higher. So I, I, I agree with that. You go through the next nine seasons, you play in Cincinnati, you become one of the great players in the history of the franchise, baseball's oldest franchise. Uh, then you get a chance to play for your hometown team in Pittsburgh. Now, this is another interesting situation for a player. Barry Larkin did it his whole career. But playing for your hometown team, what was that like? Oh, well, you know, it's funny. Growing up in Pittsburgh, I, all I wanted to do was play for the Pirates just because, you know, I grew up watching. Them. My teams were really like, uh, you know, Bonds and Bonilla and Van Slyke and Jay Bell and all those teams, you know, Doug Drabeck. Um, so I was, you know, my dream was to play for the Pirates. So when I did in 2006, I was really excited. But I also, you know, it was fun. To, it's fun to wear that uniform, but it's not fun when you're, your tail kicked in every night when you're not really on a great team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for me, it was like <clears throat> it was my ninth year in the big leagues. I really wanted to have a chance to go to the postseason at that point. You know, I think leaving Cincinnati was definitely a tough thing for me when it first happened. But it, looking back, you know, I really believe God's got a plan for all of it. So it turned out to be the three of the best years of my life going to going to the World Series that year in 06. But yeah, playing for the Pirates was a dream come true. And uh, but I also think at that stage of my career, I really wanted to play for a winner. You know, I, I called that series when you were playing in 2006, back in the uh, league championship series for Fox and playing for the Tigers. The, the Tigers have had a lot of lean years uh, over the last 20, 25, 30 years. They've had some good teams periodically, including the one you played on in 06. I got to tell you, and I'm curious if you agree, um, those are some of the best fans in the world when they've got a good team, the Detroit Tigers. That is a fun place to go and watch baseball when they're good. Did you feel that way? Incredible. Incredible, Tom. I'll tell you one story. Uh you know, the, the, the fans that came out, that city is, a, you know, they are a blue-collar city. And they and we were a blue-collar team with a blue-collar manager in Jim Leland. I mean, you know, we kind of took on to his personality. But, you know, I remember in um, the division series, I hit a ball off Randy Johnson that, that was a couple guys on. It was a big part of the game. I doubled off Johnson in the gap, and I get to second base. Joe Torrey's coming out to take out Randy Johnson. The, it, it's absolute pandemonium. Because, you know, we realize, man, we're, we're, gonna, we're about to beat the Yankees. Places on their feet. You can't see a fan because there's so many orange towels waving. It's just a, it's a sea of orange towels. The music is playing so loud. And I remember looking, I remember this so vividly, looking back at the crowd and just thinking, what, what a fan base. What a city. Like, this is incredible. The energy that those fans brought in that summer of 06. I mean, we'll go down in history as, 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 as some of the greatest fans, you know, ever in the game. And like I said, those are some of the greatest memories I have. And the, one of the biggest reasons is because that city was so electric and the, those fans backed us so much. 
it's funny for guys that get a chance to play in the postseason year after year after year and guys like Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera on the mound and, 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 and how they elevate their game even to another level when they get on that big stage. And then there are some guys, and, and look, it's not sitting here picking on anybody, but they might only get a chance or two. Uh, and, and when they get in there, just things don't go the way they hope for. And, and they're remembered as a guy who, who couldn't get it done in the postseason. Your numbers in the postseason are staggering. 410 batting average. You go in 12 games with both Detroit and Boston. You drive in nine runs in the 12 games. I'm curious, Sean, when, when, when you had that chance, finally, after a long time of not having that chance to get on the big stage, was there anything different in your mind as you showed up at the ballpark or when you walked to the plate in situations like that that was different in the playoffs uh, than it may have been during the regular season? Well, obviously, Tom, you know, being around, you know, postseason baseball, especially the World Series, you know, you can feel it in the air, you know, and, and, and you walk out there in batting practice that for game one and you're like, wow, does this feel different? <laughs> this feels so different. The adrenaline's a little more, you know, the excitement's a little more in the air. One thing that I knew was that I knew how I was very grateful to be there because it was my ninth year in the big leagues and I'd really never played in the postseason besides that one game in 1999 where we lost to the Mets with the Reds. So I'd never really experienced that. So I knew how special it was and I knew how hard it was to be there. And I just remember telling myself, I am going to cherish every moment I have here. I am going to I am going to be all gas, no break. I'm coming right for it. If I go down, I'm going down swinging and I'm coming out hard. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I'm ready for this. Like all my whole career, I'm ready. Uh, I've learned the process of an at-bat. I've learned the process of taking care of, of being able to um, play in front of uh, a ton of fans and pressure and all that stuff. And, it, you know, all those, all that experience that I had over those nine years helped me so much in that postseason to not let it get so big and just realize, no, this is special. You know, lean into the moment, get into the present moment, go one pitch at a time. And uh, it just really worked out for me. I just in incredible to look back, you know, hitting two homers in the World Series. And I remember rounding the bases on my first one thinking, holy crap, I just homered <laughs> in the World Series. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is unbelievable. Like, I'm, I'm that kid, that 14-year-old kid that, like, that couldn't play on the freshman team. All those swings, you know, trying to find a college that wants me. And next thing you know, in 2006, I'm literally rounding the bases in St. Louis after homing for the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Like, it still gives me chills to this day 16 years later. You said a minute ago, and, and, I, and I wanted to jump in there, when you said you had a double off Randy Johnson. Now, I had a chance to watch Randy Johnson. He was at the tail end there, so I'm going to beat you up for, for getting a double on Johnson. He was washed up by then anyway. But back in the heyday, you were in a game where he struck out 20 batters. I had the privilege of watching that guy every five days. Uh, when he was at the top of his game, Cy Young, Cy Young, Cy Young, every single year. For a left-handed batter, can you put into words, and we all remember the John Cruck thing in the All-Star game, but as a left-handed batter, can you put into words what it was like to face Randy Johnson? <laughs> it was scary. <laughs> it was really scary. It was the most uncomfortable at bat. Uh, you know, th those at bats that I had against Randy Johnson were probably the most uncomfortable at bats, especially when he was in Arizona. I remember the first time facing him, it was just, he's 6'11. You know, I'm a lefty in there against him. He he's throwing behind me. He's got that three quarter release. 
you know, and he's throwing a hundred and then he's throwing like a 92, 93 mile an hour slider down and away. It's just, I had never seen anything like it in my life when I first faced him. And uh, it was a great experience for me though, because it really taught me perspective. I remember the first day I faced him, he dominated me. I think I was 0 for 4 with two, two strikeouts. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I was so excited with Randy Johnson and intimidated. And after, the, after facing him, I thought to myself, if I have that same thought process for every pitcher I face in the big leagues, I'm going to be out of here soon. So it was like the Randy Johnson at bat where I was like, this is so uncomfortable and he's such a large human. But if I continue to think that, you know, these guys are, are, are better than me, then it's going to be in trouble. And I, I started to visualize guys from that point on. I said, as soon as they release the ball, it's a pitching machine. And when it comes in, I'm going to hammer it, you know. So thank you, Randy, for helping me change my mentality because he, so, he was so nasty that I'm like, I got to be better in my in my own thinking against some of these guys that are unbelievable. He was, you know, when 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 you at the MLB Network, when you guys replay some games and you watch some games that he pitched, and, and I mean, I was there for a ton of them, but I, I mean, I, I look at him now, and I just, it's mind-boggling to me what a phenomenal pitcher he was. I, 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 I want to move on now, a couple other things. Let's talk about baseball today. Just recently, they uh, decide to make some rule changes in the game, multiple rule changes in the game. How do you feel about those changes? I love them. I love them. I talked to Theo. Theo Epstein was part of, you know, uh, that, that group that, that put those together. And I was talking to him the other night and, you know, they've done the research, you know, especially that pitch clock down in, uh, you know, down in the minor leagues, they've done the numbers. I mean, it almost cuts off 25, 30 minutes of the game. I think the game was 244 or 248 was the average minor league game when they had the pitch clock. So I kind of like that because it speeds, you know, it, it, it speeds the game up. It makes it a little a little faster. And guys will have to get used to it. I'm sure that'll be an adjustment guys will have to make, but they will make that adjustment. Um, the other, th you know, getting rid of the shift, Tom, like I I, I kind of like that. I don't know, man. Like you've got two right fielders. you got all these mm -hmm. guys shifted to the one side. And I know guys say, well, just hit it the other way. It's not that, first off, it's not that easy just to hit it the other way. And there are certain guys that can make you shift back. But I do think like, you know, it, it, I do think it's like almost like uh, you know, the NFL with receivers on the line, whatever, you know, of having, you know, uh, you can't have so many guys on a certain side or yep. whatever. Like there's rules in every sport for that stuff. So I kind of like that the the, the um, fielders need to be on the other each side of second base, two fielders on each side of second base when the pitch is thrown. I personally like that. And the other one was the they made the bag 18 inches instead of 15 inches. Being a guy that broke my back one time at first base at a play when I was with the Pirates because it was so tight over there, I kind of like that extra three inches. I think it makes the game a little better for as far as stolen ba stolen bases goes and guys, you know, taking a shot because it's a little uh, a little closer. So I like the rules that they did. What do you think, Tom? Like, well, I mean, you know, look, I I, I really think, and, and Sean, you're making a living at it. I'm not anymore of broadcasting baseball games. Uh, hopefully, we'll get a chance uh, one of these days again. But if not, if not. But you will be. Uh, well, well, we'll see. But um, um, you know, it, 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 the, the game right now breaks my heart in so many ways because you were playing, going back to when I was announcing the Cubs games is when you first came up to the to the big leagues, and, and I just remember, uh, you know, the, those average time of games like you're talking about. It, it was two thirty five. It was two forty. It was two twenty seven. It was two seventeen. 
you had a lot of those games. Even five to four, six to five, seven to five games were going 220, 230. And now, Sean, I look at, you know, I tell the story all the time about my son a couple of years ago. Um, I asked him, we're riding in the car, and I'm bringing him back from practice uh, one night from basketball or, uh, basketball workout, and the World Series was going on, and, and Game 7 was that night. And I asked him, and I said, hey, you're going to watch Game 7 tonight? And he looks at me, and he says, Dad, he says, the game doesn't start until 8.30, and the game's going to be three and a half hours long. I got school tomorrow. I can't stay up that late to watch the end, so what's the point? And I think that that is really – that's really been the norm now in baseball, and I think it's hurting the game. They have to do something to get it moving, don't you think? Yeah, I totally think, and I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to speed it up. They're trying to make it more exciting, and uh, yeah, I think the thing. I think these changes that they've they like I said, they've tested these in the minor leagues, and they work. So I think I think that's what they're trying to do: speed the game up, make it more interesting, especially for the younger generation. We got to make sure your kids and my kids. Are invested in this game, and it's and it's and it's a product that they want to watch. Um, I, now, now, when you talk about the pitch clock, okay, I mean, if you want to go ahead and do it for us here on camera right now, your <laughs> whole routine in between pitches for crying out loud. I mean, if if, if Mike Hargrove is known as the human rain delay. <laughs> then, then I don't know what the hell they're calling you because I mean every single. I mean, w w walk us through that whole routine. I always want to ask you: Is that some OCD thing? I mean, I got OCD, and I, I mean, I get it. You got to do this, and you got to do that. I get all that stuff. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you know what? There was it, that that whole routine, and I think if if you told me I had to do it within, if I had twelve seconds, I could I could do it. I just would start doing it. I'd be stretching, doing everything I got to do. And I'd do it in 12 <laughs> seconds. You know what I mean? So, I know the batting gloves thing started back when I was hitting those, at, you know, every day in the cages. I hit so much. My batting gloves would get so wet. And my dad's like, we can only afford one pair of batting gloves. So, I'm like, I got to just figure this out. So, I used – I didn't feel comfortable unless my gloves were super tight. So, I that was the first thing. Then I used to lift up my back leg to pop my hip. And I, you know, I don't know. It just felt good when I did that. And then, you know, just the shoulder roll stuff. And I was a mess up there. But I, would, I was really thinking in my mind, I was doing all that. But I was thinking about, all right, like, what did he just throw me? 93 on a sink. All right. He just, just saw his curveball, right? I'm ready to go. I'm getting a deep breath. And here we go. So it, it was just a process that I just, it made me feel comfortable. It made me feel like I was ready to go when I did it. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Where did the nickname the mayor come from? A guy named Bill Moziello, who's the head coach now at Ohio State, uh, just got the job. He yeah, yeah. They introduced him on the field the other night, right? Yeah, man. He was my favorite coach, one of, my, one of the best coaches I ever had. Ohio State is in good, is in good hands with Bill Moziello. I promise you that. There's no doubt about it. But he was uh, – you know, he was, oh, I, you know, you know me, Tom. I'm, I'm coming in, I'm talking to the, to the, to the concession ladies, and I'm talking to this guy, and I'm talking to the little kids. What's going on, man? You know, and so Mosey was like, man, I've never seen anything like it, bro. He's like, you're like the mayor, man. He's like, it looks like you're lobbying for votes. Every person you talk to, like, you're lobbying for votes or something, you know? And I was like, hey, man, I was like, you know, you got to be nice to people, you know, whatever. So he called me the mayor that whole summer, and I don't know how it got to the big leagues, but it somehow infiltrated one night Carl Ravage on baseball tonight. Tonight I, I was watching in the hotel after a, a big game and I, I, I doubled in the gap 
And he was like, the mayor with a big double, or Sean Casey, they call him the mayor with a big double. And I'm like, oh my God, it's it's infiltrating the big league. So <laughs> it initially started with Bill Mosiello in the Cape Cod League in 1994. And then all of a sudden, it was in the big leagues. And that's how it kind of started. And I think another thing was just me talking to guys at first base and you know, jibber jabbering and, and, you know, talking about the weather and their families and how you swing it and what your swing feel like and all that stuff. So I think it just carried on and it, it's, uh, it served me well the rest of my life, brother. If there was ever one conversation over at first base with another player that you've never forgotten for whatever reason, it could be something just completely ridiculous. It could be something where you kind of just raise your eyebrows and you were like, wow, anything like that? You know what? I think I think the one conversation there's I've had a ton of conversations, but the one conversation I had with Mark McGuire, man, because I was it was so I was so wide eyed in '98. I was a rookie. It was Sosa McGuire were going back and forth. McGuire was like a larger than life figure for anyone in sports, and uh, you know we were playing them daily. And I remember the first time we played them when I was up there, um, we intentionally walked them. And I remember thinking, oh man, this is so great. I get a chance to talk to Mark McGuire. Because if I, I was hitting like 200 at the time, I was like, I'm about to get sent down. And at least I get a conversation with McGuire. I'll start to tell my kids one day. <laughs> so so, so I, I end up sneaking over. And I'm, as I'm sneaking over, Jack McKeon's in the dugout like, hey, Case, play behind him. I'm like, oh, I don't want to play behind him. I want to talk to him. So I'm like, I'm like five feet behind him. But I come up. I'm like, hey, what's up, Big Mac? And he turns to me. He's like, how you doing, Sean? I was like, yes. Guy knows my name. Let's go. That was incredible. So, <laughs> so the next at bat, Tom, we, we, he he ends up walking again, and I'm like, I'm not even gonna look in the in the in the. I gotta get this conversation in. I'm not even gonna look in the dugout. I know they're gonna try and tell me. So I walk up as quick as I can. Hey, what's up, Big Mac man? Hey, you're having a great summer, man. Can't believe you got 45 home runs. That's unbelievable. And it's only July. You know, he's like, oh, thanks, man. I was like, it's really cool. Your son's the bat boy too. I've been watching that and reading Sports Illustrated, and he's like, oh, thanks a lot, Sean. You know, we're having this conversation, and I'm like, this is, and, and I literally just fell into the moment. Like, I forgot I was in the big leagues. I forgot I was the first baseman for the Reds. I'm like, how the hell did I get on this field having a conversation with Mark McGuire in the summer 98, you know? And as we're talking, I guess Jack McKeon is going nuts behind me, and so is the whole dugout. Now, because the game, I'm like, why the hell is the guy not pitching the ball? Well, they're not pitching because they're trying to get me to play behind McGuire, but I'm so immersed in this unbelievable conversation with them. You know, so I, so McGuire's like, hey, man, he's like, I think they want to get your attention. So I turned to the dugout. I was like, what the hell? Play behind him. Wake up. We've been yelling at you for the last three minutes. And I was like, oh, my bad. But it was the first time I didn't care. I was like, there's the conversation. If I get sent out of here, I got a conversation with Mark McGuire. I'll be telling Tom Brennan in 30 years. 20 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 Sammy Sosa was in on that deal. And, and you know, I, I mean, I always found him, and, and I don't care if people get wrapped up in, you know, did he do this, did he not do that? that, that that's, that's not for this time and place. But I always found him to be such a cool dude and always had a smile on his face. I, I always likened him the years I was there to almost a uh, – a Latin American born player who was like a Sean Casey. He loved to talk to people. He loved to smile and he loved to be around people. Yeah. Oh, uh, Sammy was having a great time. You're right. And, and it was a party around Sammy. So it was a party at Wrigley. And then when Sammy was there, you know, that place was going crazy for the years that he was hitting, you know, 60 home runs and what he was doing was, was absolutely amazing. But yeah, Sammy's, you know, Sammy's personality was great for the game during that time, especially when they, in that chase at 98. 
you know, having that smile and doing the whole thing, you know, you know, in the dugout yeah. after he hit homers and stuff. So, you know, he was a great personality for the game. I'm curious, uh, you know, Sean, do you feel like baseball at this point in time needs another Sosa McGuire kind of shot in the arm? Because right now, Aaron Judge just hit 56 and 57 last night for the New York Yankees. And now, look, we don't live in New York. We're right here in Cincinnati where the team's not very good and there aren't a lot of people right now following baseball and they're more interested in college football and the NFL. But, but, but nobody talks about Aaron Judge. I think everywhere they were talking about Sammy and McGuire back in those days. Does baseball need something like that to happen? I th- well, I think so. I think also another thing that's happening is Shohei Otani's happening too. Like, you know, we've never seen a guy do what he's doing with – you know, 34, you know, he's third in the league in home runs, and he's going to be top five in the Cy Young young race. But I think the Aaron Judge is is special because, you know, whether you like it or not, at the end of the day, you know, the, the home run record is still connected to three guys with PEDs and McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds. And, you know, having that number 61, 62 was always like the big number. And I think having Judge doing it, doing it this summer in a Yankee uniform, He's 20 home runs ahead of the next guy in the league. So, you know, it's really been a historic year for him. The Yankees aren't where they're at without him. But I think that chase for 61-62 is becoming, you know, exciting again for fans uh, in baseball. And I do think anything like this that happens in the game uh, is really good for the game of baseball. All right, last thing I want to ask you about. Um, uh, your, both of your sons uh, have had a chance to be really good baseball players, and they continued playing baseball out of high, uh, after high school and so forth. And, and look, baseball is littered with guys who had sons that were really good players, whether they were major league players or just good amateur players, whatever the case might be. Um, when, when you were sitting there as a dad, when you got to watch them, uh, and watch them both in high school and in college. Um, did you feel pressure for them because their dad was Sean Casey? Did they feel pressure because their dad was Sean Casey? Uh, you know what? Is there a, is there a certain pressure? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is. But like, I didn't raise them that way. You know, I didn't I didn't raise my kids like you got to play baseball like or you know whatever. I I just. I think they both ended up playing college baseball because they were around it a lot. They put the work in. They worked really hard at it. You know, that was a lot of the things that I would say is like, you know, repetitions of mother of skill. You're not going to get good in something unless you put the work in. And they both did. So I think for me, like, and do they get the Sean Casey stuff? And you're, yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah. But I said at the end of the day, here's the bottom line. Like, I was, I'm a great father. I love you guys to death. I want you guys to do whatever you want to do in life, but I want you to do it well, and I want you to work hard at it. I want you to put the time in, and I want you to develop skills. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's their life. You know, it's not my life. My life was my life. My story is my story. And, like, I think that's one thing that's so unique is, like, our kids are their own unique beings, and uh, I'm just very proud of them as, as the men they're becoming more than anything. Well, Case, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know you got to get to work. I mean, you've got that fancy green room behind you. It almost looks like there's a bed in there. I don't know if you slept back. I don't know if those are sheets or what the hell that is back there. I got a dishwasher. I just did the dishes. I got mayhem here, okay? You got a, I, I mean, you're a big league operator. You got a kitchen and a, and a, fr- a full fridge, stacked up fridge in a hotel room. That's when you know you're really a big leaguer, not doubling off Randy Johnson. 
I'm at the residence inn. I'm not like Frank. What do you think? I'm at like some nice high rise. I'm at the residence inn in Secaucus, New Jersey, right now. Well, you're not used to <laughs> residence inns. I can tell you that. Although I think they're nice places. All right, they brother. Thanks nice. for they're your nice. time today, Case. God bless you, man. Great having you. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Tommy, so good to see you, my man. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person at some point. And uh, tell your pops I said hi. Uh, the old curmudgeon. Hi, old curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Casey, kind enough to join us. Thank you so much, Sean. And uh, boy, what, I mean, the, the guy's the best. I mean, what else are you going to say? I, I've never met an athlete. I, I'm not sure I've ever met a person. And I, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. I don't know if I've ever met a person like that guy. He's in a good mood all the time. He treats people just Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.